0: technology leaders are navigating the COVID-19 crisis. Hi, this is Craig Welch from Black Moss Partners and you're listening to the Leaders Lounge Podcast. Technology has been on the front lines for companies dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. Now more than ever, it's important for technology leaders to solve how to navigate an emerging new normal across technology, people, and process. In addition, CTOs have to provide flexible operations and services and essentially enabling businesses to pivot in response to the problems and opportunities they currently face. Today, I'm talking with Carl Spools, head of global technology and operations at Alliance Bernstein. With over 3,000 employees worldwide, Alliance Bernstein is a global asset management firm providing investment management and research services to institutional high net worth and retail investors. I had the privilege to work with Carl while I was at Alliance Bernstein, and I can tell you he is an innovative, collaborative, driven, and inspiring individual. During this podcast, I will discuss with Carl his experiences managing through the crisis and the impact it has had on his role at Alliance Bernstein and him as a leader. Carl, hi. How are you? How's it going? Good. Yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I'm interested in your thoughts on a number of things as you've kind of gone through this this crisis in your role as the CTO at Alliance Bernstein and, and talking about how this crisis has affected you as a leader but I, I think it's kind of surreal when you start off i mean you think we haven't worked together in a while i'm this american this yank now over here and now i'm talking to the Englishman in new york but where,
1: where are you at right now exactly so yes it's been a while yeah so uh i um in addition to man- being the cto i actually run all of the application technologies and uh and our operations so uh the role is uh, is both tech and ops across AB. Right now, I'm uh, for since two thousand since the middle of two thousand and eighteen. I've been in Nashville building out our new head office. So I was one of the first people on the ground there, and we've been recruiting heavily uh, since then. Right now, as we're in the pandemic, I'm splitting my time between Nashville, uh, where I'm spending probably three quarters of my time, and the rest of the time I'm up in New York, where my daughter lives, so spending time with her.
0: Wow. So, I mean, think if we uh, if we went back like twelve years ago, and you and I were sitting here thinking that I would be in London, you would be in
1: Nashville, and we'd be having a conversation <laughs> during the middle of a pandemic. I know it's, that is crazy. I say that sort of, I say something along those lines to people often. Each week, I have a um, like an all hands meeting, and at the very start, I've you know kind of have got into a somewhat of a a rhythm of describing how many weeks it is from home, right? So I'll I'll say something like, it's update 25, that's 26 weeks from home. Would you have thought we'd have been working at home for 26 weeks when we started this? And, uh, you know, it's a somewhat rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. So let's go back to when this, you know, we had a conversation a while back. Thinking back when you first realized that this was going to be something big can you remember when that was and what were your thoughts and then what were those early days like kind of you know the executive team and ab starting to to get a sense of this was going to change the way things were going to be for not only your relationship with clients but also internally as well can you think back to that those early days and what were they like
1: yes i guess the first time i started thinking something different was happening was early in February when you started to see reports on the news of the Chinese government building this thousand bed hospital in Wuhan and you know I, I watched a few sort of time lapse there was some pretty interesting sort of drone photography of them building it and my initial thought was look this is somewhat sort of propaganda right this is them putting a, a brave face on on a response and you know, showing the world how they're responding to, you know, what at the time was uh, reports of this novel virus out of, out of China. But I, as I sort of thought about it more and, and saw it reported more on the news, it sort of struck me that, you know, there must be something pretty serious going on for someone to put the amount of effort, you know, the aerial shot of the work that was being done was colossal. And the number of people that were working on it was, was you know, led me to think, look, there must be something really, something quite different happening. And so that sort of kicked around in my head for a few weeks, and as you remember, the news cycle at the time was now every time you turn on the TV, it's you know almost every doesn't, every minute there's something about the coronavirus. But at the time, the, the sort of noise was starting to ratchet up, and so towards the end of February, I, I have a leadership team inside of technology and operations, and it's the leadership team is the top thirty or so folks within my organization, the people who have deep subject matter expertise in every part of our department. So I get that group together on a, on a weekly basis. Since then, we've changed that frequency. And I can talk about that in a, in a second. But I just posed the, to that group three questions. I just asked them via email what, late one evening, what would happen if everybody had to work from home? And as you know, we have pretty extensive work from home capabilities, but we rarely have every, we never have everybody working from home. What would it look like if everybody was from working from home? What would it look like if we had reduced capacity because people working from home were having to care for loved ones or help you know, educate children. I wasn't as forward-thinking to add educate children. I said care for loved ones. But in in the rearview mirror, educate children has been a big impact to our staff. And third, what would happen if if some of our offshore colleagues were unable to work as well? I sent that out early in the week. We met on the Thursday as we normally do, and we just kicked around some ideas around. You know, how would we start to respond to that? So we we did a couple of things. First off, we started to make sure that we had enough equipment and supply to be able to make sure that everybody was not only sort of capable f- from working from home, but comfortable. And that was mostly about end-user equipment, extra monitors, Chromebooks, things that are just the, the end-user terminal. Second of all, I asked everybody in the organization, like I say, I have about 1,000 a, a people. There are about 650 of those in the U.S. I asked every one of them to spend one day a week working from home. To to exercise the muscle, right? To make sure that you have the materials, you have the stuff. So that was the, the first discussion within my team. I think towards the end of February I brought that up at the operating committee, which is our leadership team for the firm, and just let people know that's what I was doing. And it was less about trying to drive that through other parts of the organisation, but just let people you know, just to have a discussion about look, I'm I'm preparing my organization for it and should other folks start to think about working from home. As we went through the, uh, the first few first week into the second week of April, it became more and more apparent that the virus was obviously here in the U.S. and spreading quite, quite rapidly. At that point in time, I spent a fair amount of time working with each operating committee member to, to sort of assess their ability to be able to work from home to make sure they had what they needed. And like I say, th- those orders we placed early in sort of mid-February very helpful because by that point everybody was out trying to source equipment and then as we transitioned to work from home we were we were very lucky we spent the previous i don't know 10 or 15 years of responding to uh, issues in and around new york had prepared us pretty well whether it was going back as far as the you know 9-11 attacks which had a big impact on our telecom abilities or whether it was uh, two or three pretty heavy storms that hit New York City that impaired our ability to either get to the office or operate the office meant over the last 10 years, we'd invested very heavily in, in VDI and work from home. And so every person in, in AB has um, a VDI terminal that's uh, a VDI host that's in our data center and a VDI terminal on their desk. So we had the infrastructure in place. It was really just making sure that end user computing was there and the muscle memory had sort of been sort of activated. So that was kind of uh, from start of when we started thinking about it through to when we actually sort of moved everybody to work from home. So when was it from, you know, you
0: started thinking about what could be in mid February, end of February to when everyone at AB was working from home. When did that occur?
1: Uh, I we uh, April 16th, I think was the date that everybody went remote. Yes. Second. Yeah. Because I
0: think you're being very modest because I think most governments didn't even act as quickly as you did. Because think about it, you're, you're thinking about, hmm, something's going to happen here. I think that's incredible. You posed a question to your team. Hey, look, what if the following situation happened? How would we respond to that? I mean, you did that in February. I mean, that, I think, I don't think most firms did that. Like I said, I don't think most governments even thought to that perspective. Is that just accredited? And I know you're always a glass half broken type of person (laughs) you're always thinking your worst case what do you attribute that to because i think that was probably something that most people didn't think of
1: doing in in that early stage yeah look i think it's a couple of things i i tend to err on the you know plan for the worst and hope for the best right and that's that has been our you know i've been in this in AB for the 20 plus years, but in technology or industry for 30 odd years. And so that's always been a sort of mantra. I've the way I've sort of approached things in the time I've spent at Alliance Bernstein. There have been a number of events that you would categorize as probably tau risk, right? Like they're unlikely to happen and they seem to be happening on a more regular basis. So I think there's a sort of healthy paranoia that I, I, I sort of live by. But then I think the, the, the main part of it is in my mind is there are some things. That are very easy to do before you're responding to an issue that are impossible to do at the point when you need to respond to it yeah it's very true right purchasing equipment is a great example of that or having a second backup way of communicating to your direct report team or having everybody's you know detailed contact details in your phone and somewhere else like it was easy to get access all those things are impossible the morning that a tornado hits North- Nashville, or are impossible when you need a thousand monitors and everyone's sold out, right? So it's that thinking that I sort of live by, which is, and it's mainly this idea of, you know, this idea of like technologists are somehow lazy, right? They'll do whatever <laughs> they can do up front to, to avoid doing it in the future. It's which pays just, off now. <laughs> it's so much easier to put a little bit of thought in beforehand and get it done when it's easy than try and, you know, do some like Herculean lift when it's hard so i think that's that's a lesson i've learned over and over again and it's a lesson i've tried to to learn from rather than keep relearning
0: yeah and it really paid off for for you uh, this time so you know that hats off to you after you started responding as a firm and you see how things are folding out you look back what really surprised you in terms of your response both externally and internally i mean what, what are some of the biggest things you're like wow i was really surprised at our ability to do x
1: so i was confident that we would be able to get everybody working from home but i was really pleasantly surprised at how smoothly it went we made sure that you know all of the staff on my team who are you know generally involved in improving the business or building out new products, were focused on supporting the existing business, and, and all of that worked incredibly well. And, and I was really pleased with the way all of the folks across our business responded. You know, everybody did what they needed to do to to be able to to make the transition pretty seamlessly. The one thing that surprised me externally is, like I said, we put all this investment in over time. We spent a, a, a lot of compounded years of capital investment to have the infrastructure in place i saw people who had made almost no investment right people who didn't run the financial services technology infrastructure and and uh from other industries be incredibly responsive and able to get their businesses up and running in a really short period of time you know i i'm on uh, a member of some sort of CTO and, and CIO type affinity groups. Most of them are industry specific, but as I've spent more time in Nashville, they are you know more broad. And it was impressive to see how quickly people were able to pivot, pack up all of the hardware from people's home, literally put them in boxes, ship them home, install completely new VPN architectures, get people up and running. I mean, those are not risks I would like to take. But people managed to work through them. So the, the resilience of people being able to adapt was, was, uh, was very impressive. And when you
0: think internally within AB, what impressed you the most about how the firm dealt with this complete change in the way they operated?
1: Look, I think the one thing that, that stands out is how hard people are working. It's just harder to get things done. It's, uh, you you know, you take all the, the, you know, the initial few weeks, I think everybody was thinking, wow, I don't have to commute. I'm sat here in, you know, more comfortable clothes. We had invested an awful lot in collaboration infrastructure because as we decided to move our head office to Nashville, we knew that that transition was going to take time. And it was critical that we had a really tight link between the folks we have in our New York head office and the folks that were going to be in the new, that we're going to hiring or moving to Nashville. And so we had a lot of the Zoom infrastructure that become very commonplace today had been used in AB by everybody. Everybody had a Zoom account. We're an enterprise Zoom customer back in late 2017, so early 18. So we were that part. I think when I, because of all of those, the investment we made in collaboration that that stood out less, and it was really just the the effort that people are putting in.
0: Yeah, and it's almost a combination because I think. And you know this better than anybody. I mean, there's the technology side of making sure you have the right investment and the right tools, but then you have an employee base that acts as a community and utilizes those tools in the right way to get their job done. Because I think at the end of the day, people want to be part of the success. They want to help the company move forward. They want to do what they need to do. And I think if you have, if you give them the right tools, you give them the right resources, When you have a situation like this, they will absolutely go above and beyond.
1: Yes. No, we definitely saw that. We needed people to operate with more autonomy and we needed people to hold themselves accountable to get work done. And I think we've been really pleased and impressed on both of those fronts. Now, in terms of communication, and I'll I'll be
0: specific about your team, right? Before the pandemic, before everyone working from home, you probably had a cadence of meetings in-person meetings, your teams would meet, all that went away, right? Because you don't have that. How, how did your communications with your teams change your thoughts around
1: how effective that change was in terms of being able to to manage through? That's a great question and answer it in a couple of different ways, right? Think about the leadership team, my my leadership executive team. That's the, like I said, the 32 or so most senior folks in the thousand person operation, Right. That group met every Thursday morning for an hour and a half, and it was a pre-pandemic you know, classic sort of leadership meeting, talk about errors, incidents, you know, things that we were doing in the calendar year in terms of, you know, reviews, promotions, um, talk about projects that we were working on, you know, people where we were investing in people, how our move to Nashville was going, you know, classic sort of department-wide management meeting. As soon as the week leading up, The first week in April, as we'd started that one day, we'd been one day working from home for a week or so at that point, I called that group together every evening for half an hour. So we meet um, at the end of the day with a totally different agenda. And the agenda was literally a a check-in around the table. You get your two minutes, you either it's business as usual or you talk about any operational issue that is facing you, where you are at, what that looks like, what help you need from other folks around the table. Is it something that we should be communicating up to uh, Kate, the COO, or uh, Seth, the CEO? So we we started that and we continue that today, right? So we, we changed the cadence slightly. We meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and still on Thursdays, but we're meeting every other day to talk through any operational issue that's happening. And, you know, as we go towards the latter half of the year, there's a lot of potential volatility out there, right? We're going into an election, and so uh unclear what will happen in terms of the virus as we get into some colder weather, and so we may modulate that back to uh, every day. That first piece around meeting on a regular basis and only talking about operational topics has been incredibly helpful with the the time it takes one of the concerns i had was with us being distributed the time from a problem occurring to actually resolving it which is the period when we were exposed to real risk in operations was going to get longer right you couldn't turn to the person next to you you might you would you know normally you would have the overheard conversation that you might be able to put your hand up and say oh that doesn't sound quite right the manager might be sat at the end of the row we say in a trading session
0: they can jump in and have an yeah, exactly. input. Into
1: I it. was worried that time to resolution or time to detection and then resolution was going to get elongated. And so that meeting, I think, has been helpful in trying to avoid that. The other thing what it's done is when I think about you know that leadership team has been in place probably about a year and a half, right? So I get the team together every week. We maybe we have an offsite once a year where we're in together for a whole week. But the amount of time we've spent together in the last 26 weeks is probably more time than we've spent together ever, right? It's had a really positive impact. We are able to get through the, the operational check very quickly. People are succinct. People are supportive of each other. I think it's sort of helped build a bond amongst that group that that was building. But I think it's sort of precipitated that connection. So that's how I've sort of thought about it from a leadership perspective. In terms of leadership of the department, I would have... Town hall schedule, two or three times a year, I'd get in front of everybody, I would either do that, I've tried to do that in person, um, so it would be you know New York, London, Asia, and talk about what was going on in the department. Generally, 25 slides of this is what the business is doing, this is how we're responding to it, this is what we're focused on, this is what the next few months looks like, call out some people, it's tr- You know, classic sort of town hall approach. Which invariably took a fair amount of effort to get right. You know, talking to a lot of people, want to get the message correct. So we turned that on its head. So the week before we started working from home, we call an all hands meeting. We had, I think, everybody on it in the first meeting, and I think we and we still get, you know, out of total headcount in tech and ops right now is about ten seventy five. We regularly get nine. 100 950 on a on a tuesday morning where we have the discussion and it's a zoom broadcast and i just try and be frank about what's going on i i try and empathize as best i can and talk about things that are hard might have a six-year-old daughter you know empathize with the fact that it's very hard to learn remotely or keep her occupied while trying to trying to work talk about what we're seeing in the various regions we operate in in terms of uh how the the virus is affecting them, and our plans to continue working from home or how we 're thinking about reopening and then I open it up to questions and uh and I try and use that as a relief valve for people to to ask questions and I try and answer them as frankly as I possibly can and and I think that's been very well received and it's it's built a connection i think to the within the organization that that was that, that wasn't well i wasn 't building through the traditional town hall it 's a much more informal conversation now look it doesn't have some of the more strategic points that, that would normally be in a town hall and i've got to think about how and i've tried to work some of those into it but it's it's hard to mix those two messages so it doesn't so it, i don't think it totally replaces the way we were communicating before i don't think going forward i'm going to talk to people every week but certainly this idea of more regular informal conversation has has proven to to be quite positive
0: well you know it's funny because um and two front i mean a few years ago I was with an organization that a, a couple of guys come in and talking about how do you manage your teams better and they actually said you have to do the opposite you have to have more communication instead of less because people would be oh I'm already fatigued about the 2 hour meeting every couple of weeks and and they said no you actually need more but not more 2 hour meetings you need more Thirty-minute, one-hour conversations because it allows people to have opportunities to hear what's going on and, and being very focused, informal, and I think that's what you've done. And especially during a crisis, I, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty sure that's a key to why I think you've gone and been able to do as well as you have. Um, and I don't, and like you said, you have still high attendance, you know, on the calls, and I think that's a, that's a that's an indication that people are, are definitely tuned in.
1: Yeah. Look, it's also, it's been an opportunity to, to talk about how AB as a broader firm is, is supporting people through the pandemic, right? And that's been received very well as, as well. I agree with you. The communication is something that I think we've got to work out how to, how to use it more going forward. The shorter, more regular, sort of broader communication, I think is something that we'll, we'll try and pick up
0: yeah. And I think that's just a reflection on what people are used to in their normal lives, right? I mean, people are constantly communicating, you know, either social media in other ways and short to the point. I think that's something that a lot of people are going to be taking those communication learnings during this crisis and continue them on in the future. When you talk about your, your key stakeholders within the firm, have you seen your relationship change with them as a result of this crisis? And what I mean by that, are you find you've been uh, actually more collaborative with some some of the other teams because sometimes crisis draws you closer, if that makes sense. Have you seen a relationship change in that front?
1: Yeah. So to just maybe talk for a second about my organizational structure, right? So AB has many business units. The way our my organization is set up is a testament to the some good thinking of my predecessor, Larry Cohen, who built these kind of... Independent infrastructure teams that support each area of the business. So our sell side business has an independent infrastructure team with a set of heads who effectively are dotted lined into the business. You know, they, they report to me in the, in the overall hierarchy and we, we work together as a technology management team. But when they think about their client, they are tightly embedded with them. We have that same structure supporting the product side of the asset manager and the distribution sides. So there are SVP level folks who sit in the management team of every one of our operating committee members. And those are part of that, that management team I talked about, my management team. I'll give you that background because I would say there has been more interest in broad technology and operations topics at the operating committee level as part of this, right? How are we responding? Have people got the right equipment? What is the communication infrastructure sufficient? What's it going to look like as we slowly bring people back into the office or in a mixed sort of mode? So there's there's thought process there. But the connection between that level of managers who partner with the SBU heads, I think has become a little tight. I agree with you that a better info or more information flow at that level than I've seen historically. And I think that's a good thing too. As a follow up to that, you've been working on the digital
0: transformation. And you tell me if I'm off here, you've been working on the digital transformation of AB for a while. And in fact, I was reading a book the other day, and they said the, the word transformation maybe shouldn't be used so much. Maybe it's more of like a digital maturity, right? Because, yeah, it yeah be. exactly. Yeah, it's not so, yeah. no, so, you know, so we're going to shift immediately. But I guess my question is because of everything that you've done up to this crisis and it's paid off, do you think the senior leadership is now going to be seeing? how important it is to continue this journey or even put more emphasis on it um, as a result of it. Do, Do you see that or is it maybe too early to tell?
1: Look, I think technology has always been seen as a key component of inside of AB. We've used it for many, you know, traditionally we've used it for operational leverage, right? Whether it's the infrastructure we've built for Know managing our wealth management business or the automation we have um, in our fixed income business. Technology has always Mm -hmm. been seen as a sort of strategic component in each of the operating committees or each of the SBU's sort of business plans. I think the journey you talked about is along a couple of different dimensions, right? There's the journey of using data more which everybody across the firm is sort of engaged in. And I think if you go to almost any company, they say that, that that's a making more decisions with harder data. I think there's another component which has been getting closer to our clients, which has been this idea that you know, we want to connect with them in more electronic ways and allow them to service themselves better. And I think that's helped us obviously in as we've responded to the pandemic, having those different electronic pathways in place has been very helpful. And I think that will continue to grow, whether that right now, it's obviously the preference because it's the only real option, whether that stays the preferences as people return, we'll see. I do think we're nowhere near the end of this, right? So if you, by the time life starts to return to what we could consider normal, we're going to have been in this for at least a year. I got to believe that's going to have changed people's doing anything for a year becomes somewhat of the new normal, right? So I do think there's a chance that in that sense, there'll be some of that will stay and people will want to continue investing in it. And then I think the other piece is the, the piece that really is that I own from a SBU perspective, which is the infrastructure of the firm. That's never been an issue to get the support to invest in the infrastructure of the firm I would see still having that support going forward, if not more. So yeah, look, I think it, it, it continues a lot across a lot of dimensions that the key piece in my mind is, you know, how much has the world changed after a year of being working from home? And and I think it's hard to answer that question.
0: Yeah. Especially because we don't know how the, how the book ends on yeah, that. Yeah, right, in absolutely. Terms of or, the when chapters, ends. That or when it chapters. How many chapters are there? Or when it ends. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We got five <laughs> chapters <true>. or 50.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, or how many volumes, exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you, you talk about having at least a year working in this manner because you, when you think about it, if if this would have been a situation of disruption for only a month, I think a lot of firms may have just said, "Okay, I'll, I'll kind of make it through and then go back." Yeah. To however they were, but because it's been an extended time, you're learning, you're you know, you're you're adapting, and you get to a point where you're like, "Well, certain things we're not going back to." So. A, you know, I know it's tough to say this, but it's a, I think a positive for a lot of firms when they're going to reflect back two or three years from now, because they probably wouldn't have made such strides in, in their kind of their, their digital journey, if this had not happened
1: as painful as it is. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting, right? I think there'll be things we've learned from this. Like I say, I, I, I believe some aspect will be involved in our lives going forward. I think there'll also be an opportunity to look back to how we operated before the pandemic, right? And maybe you rethink flexibility you gave people in terms of their ability, where they work, and and how they work. You're, yeah. You know, people will think about maybe the amount of time people travel. We obviously have a lot of people travelling all over the world to to meet and support our clients. You know, maybe thinking a little bit about what the real estate footprint is, and can you think about do you need as much, or can you think about that differently? So I think yes, I think this will have pretty significant shift in the same way there's been other shifts in the past right when you think about in the 80s and 90s when all sort of manufacturing was outsourced or as in the last you know in the sort of early 2000s as more and more work was sent offshore there was some big seismic shifts in how people work i think this however long it turns out we're going to be working from home could precipitate another sort of shift
0: yeah i think so so let me get back i mean we we, i did want to talk about leadership a bit with and you made a comment. I, so in another podcast that we've done, we were discussing leadership during a crisis and the topic was around resilient leader, the person who just gets stuff done. But at the same time, that type of leader can have a negative impact because they're, they're saying, Hey, look, I'm working super hard. I'm pushing through. I don't see everybody else working at the same level or is committed because they almost have this, and we call this kind of contempt for the people who aren't able to, to show that same level of commitment because that, that leader may not know what's going on in those individuals' lives. And I think what you talked about is empathy. And this, this article that was in Harvard Business Review talks about the, the need for compassion, right? To be able to, to understand.
1: Yes. Yeah, that, that's the term I would use is, is compassion.
0: You talked about that and saying, "Hey, look, I, I have a daughter. I, I I know what that's going through." Do you do you see yourself a bit different now? I mean, have you have some of your leadership skills or the way you approach your leadership role has changed a bit, or at not at all, or
1: maybe significantly as a result of of going through this? That's a that's a good question. I mean, I think the, maybe the way to start to answer it is I come back to. So many things come back to sort of culture of an uh, organization. Our previous CEO, Peter Krauss was I learned an incredible amount from him about the importance of culture. And that was one of us. He, he held that in higher regard than almost anything else. I always think about like, what's the culture of our organization first? And I try and make it like simple. Like how would you describe it to, your, to a family member, right? And in my mind, culture for my organization, this tries to be, we, we try and hire smart, Intellectually curious people who want to win as part of a team—it's—it's that kind of simple to me. We'd like that that group to be as diverse as possible to get different perspectives and point of views, and so it sort of starts there, right? So I, I try and have tried to build an organization where the people in it meet or have most of those attributes. So I start there. Then, when I think about personally being a leader, I've always tried to lead from the front, right? When we moved to Nashville, I tried to make sure I was the first person on on the ground. I've tried to be informed. So if we're going to do something new, we're going to build an office, uh, an asset manager in China. I'm going to go to China and spend a couple of weeks there and try and learn what that's all about. Like as much of it as I immerse myself in it. And I've tried to provide people with opportunity and uh, and autonomy to get things done. Um, So I, I try and sort of Shake my leadership team that way right i'm trying to get out in front of things i'm trying to be visible i'm trying to understand the problem but i'm going to quickly as much as i once i got my arms around it i'm going to try and give it to somebody else and give them the opportunity to handle it to manage it and to uh, to work through it so I, I i hope that cascades down through our organization my my goal is to cascade that approach down to the organization so that that's kind of like how i think like what what i think about leadership Certainly, you, you mentioned contempt. Certainly, would never feel contempt for folks who couldn't, like, who can't deliver for whatever reason. I've tried through the um, pandemic to, uh, to, to as we said, to be understanding and to be compassionate and and try and offer people up, you know, ways to to deal with what's going on in their lives. Right, so not everybody. Needs to be engaged from eight till five, right? And so, um, you know, if there's a, some flexibility, we can give people try and delegate work um, rather than inputs. Like, did you sit at your desk for eight hours? Dele- you know, try and measure on outputs. Like, did the job get done? Did the task get done? Is everything being managed? So, try and make sure that we have, we're, we're it's and that's a subtle shift, but try and make sure that we're we're focused on the outputs. Trying to provide f- flexibility wherever we can. Try and encourage people to one of the things that I think the pandemic has done is ba- is is um, removed the sort of bookends that normally happen at the end the start and end of a of a work day, right? You would typically get to work you know on some routine and leave on some routine and and then maybe the commute, however long that is, was the was the mental switch between you know work and, and professional and, and personal life. That's been removed. And so trying to encourage people to, to put that in, however artificially it is. Um, and it's one of the things we see when we look at the, some of the sort of high level stats around the organization, we see people are working incredibly hard and working long hours. And so, you know, I've tried to, to, um, you know, build a team that hopefully will respond the right way, encourage them to respond the right way, and then try and support them as best I can through the communication and, uh, and flexibility. So
0: so on that point, how do you prevent you yourself burning out? What are your guardrails? What are your bookends?
1: so i I try and have some other things in my life, right? I think life is a about balance and trying to have multiple things that interest you. I try not to let what I do at a B it's obviously incredibly interesting to me and very rewarding and in some cases all consuming. I try and prevent that. I try and have something else that I'm focused on. so for many years, I along with other members of the team in New York, were mentoring high school robotics programs, which took up an incredible amount of time, right? It was very rewarding and helped get more folks into STEM. Folks um, hope, helped build paths into engineering for people who might not necessarily see that as a path into engineering with the goal that maybe we'll get some of those folks into AB, but if not, you know, that, something like that, right? Where you've, you know, at five o'clock, 20 high school kids are showing up and they've been thinking about building a robot all day and you can't spend an extra half an hour working on something you've got to go and do that right so try you know finding things that give you that balance through the pandemic it's been um woodworking for me i enjoy uh doing things with my hands and so i've spent more time woodworking and building woodworking projects and amassing the the uh collection of woodworking tools that i have so uh, i try and find some balance and then the the other piece which i'm It's always been important as I try and and stay fit, try and get out there and run. Most of the reflecting on the day or planning on the day ahead happens when I'm running. And so uh, I try and do that as best I can.
0: So so how many cabinets have you built so far um, in lockdown?
1: (laughs) Not many cabinets. I have built a bunch of things that I've been I've, in my move to Nashville happened, like I said, in May of of 18. And as you know, when you move to a new house, there's an endless supply of things to do. So yeah. it's been a lot of woodworking related to that. There's been a number of people who've left AB and I've made them things to, to remember AB by. So, so lots of lots of different things.
0: Great. Well, Carl, look, this has been a great conversation. Um, we got to make it so we're not uh, taking, you know. A decade yes, to reconnect absolutely. Uh, have you have you switched over to country music yet
1: i, I, mean, just, that's, I have well, to that know that's well that's interesting so look um and it's one of the many cliches that people think about when they think about nashville like nash one of the great one of the reasons we picked nashville is for a town of like if you take greater nashville area there's probably about two million people right and we looked at a lot of towns of that size and cities of that size where we could move our business one of the things that the nashville has going for it is because of the music scene and the energy that that's brought, there's a disproportionate amount of stuff you can do in a city of 2 million people in Nashville than if you compare it to other cities of its size, right? It has, it's not just country music, it's every type of music comes through there. And you name a band that you've liked in the last your entire life. If they're still alive, there's a chance they come through Nashville at some point. Great restaurant scene. You know the people who come to Nashville to listen to music bring it. Requires sort of a diversity in cultural diversity in the types of foods they like to eat. And so you have got you know great restaurant scene. You've got great sports scene. So Nashville has a lot, and it has by far the best country music. In the 400 or so people I've hired in technology and operations in Nashville, there are probably three or four amazing guitarists a bunch of great pianists like everybody there are a lot of people who uh, moved to Nashville to be a musician and then decided to do something else so music is country music is is big and the sort of Nashville scene of, of, of country music is really big but uh, music of all types is uh, is very popular there including the symphony it's great great uh, Nashville symphony as well
0: Well, uh, let me just tell you, in addition to mentoring those students, I think you can now um, work for the Nashville Tourist Bureau. (laughs) Um, I think they already count me on that. Yeah, I think they must. Look, Carl, great talking to you. Wish you all the best. Uh, Next time I'm in the States, I'm going to try and figure myself to get down to Nashville and and enjoy maybe half the things you just listed. Yeah,
1: no, we'd love to show you around. All right, Carl, good
0: talking to you. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Leaders Lounge Podcast. For more insights from industry leaders about overcoming challenges and realizing success in times of change and uncertainty, please go to blackmosspartners.com.